Welcome to J. Fonce's Ignorance, episode 19. I'm sitting here with Rebecca Stavick, private citizen. So Rebecca and I met um, at uh, this Open Nebraska event that mm-hmm. I think you were running at the time. I think, isn't that? that when we met? What year was that? 2013, maybe? Oh, probably. So Open Nebraska started in 2012. Yeah, I was late, I think, to the game. And yeah. I, I showed up because there was a hack a hack event weekend something or other. The, a hack of something. We did a Hack Omaha event. I want to say that was the fall of 2013. So maybe that was it. Yeah. yeah. So before this thing called Open Nebraska existed, tell me how uh, that got started. Well, there was some civic hacking stuff going on in Omaha way before me. Uh, Matt Wynn. Uh, who then at the time I think worked for the World Herald. He's more of a freelance writer now. But I know that Matt Wynn and a few other folks in town had been working on some open data projects. Um, So by the time we did Hack Omaha in the fall of 2013, I want to say that was like the third Hack Omaha hackathon. Um, Was that through the World Herald, those Hack Omahas? Were they sponsored? I think so. I'm not 100% sure. I want to say yes, but not really sure. So... There was definitely some activity on that before I came along, but um, so let's see, we're going to rewind to 2013. I was working at the library, and I had just kind of finished up my master's degree. I did my master's in library and information science, and I was just really eager to jump into something really interesting and something that felt new and kind of innovative, and so I, one day I'm like cruising around on the internet and I learned about Code for America and civic hacking and all that. And I was like, that's pretty chill. You know, we need to be doing that here. And so that's when I got to Googling and I found Matt Wynn. And out of nowhere, I just sent him a message. I was like, yo, let's meet up. I want to hear about what you're doing. And I met uh, Matt Wynn and Mike Battershell at a Starbucks and they thought I was crazy, and I was like, "You guys are definitely crazy." And well, why did they? What did? What was it that you were proposing that was so crazy? I don't know. I'm not sure. I was proposing anything specifically, but I was kind of just this like rando chick who I just like showed up, and I'm like, "Let's start some shit." <laughs> <You know? laughs> rando chick, master librarian, though. I mean, you walked in there with your level 17 librarian <laughs> facilities, right? Well, no? I yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I think that that uh, librarians should be naturally interested in open data. And I think public libraries especially are in like this perfect space to be doing open data work. And we're seeing more and more of that on a national level. But at the time um, and up until this point, there's not, there, there hasn't been a ton of library folks, at least in Nebraska that I know of that are doing a lot of like open data work. So I'm not sure that that connection was super obvious to them, or maybe even to me at the time. So, And Matt Wynn was on this podcast as episode two, so you can go back to our 2015 interview and listen to Matt Wynn's genius with uh, DataOmaha.com, who was, he was with at the time. Does he still do Data Omaha, or is that a World Herald? I think that's a World Herald thing. He's more okay. of a freelance writer, as I understand it now. Now, so. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. So in 2013, you were did you search around for other people doing open data? Like, were, was there a specific interest that you had like school records or tax records or voting records or political contribution records or electrical facilities? I didn't have a specific interest. I, I'm mostly interested in 
obviously coming from a library background, I want to make information as accessible as possible. And knowing that there is just a plethora of raw data coming out of government, right? Government produces all this data and you really can't understand it or interact with that information without a developer possibly getting involved, right? And creating it into tools that your average person can use. So, so when I first met up with them, I, you know, it was kind of just a general conversation, but I, I was very interested kind of right off the bat of starting something up. And so I, I'm not sure that if, so I want to say that Hack Omaha probably was a World Herald type thing. I don't know if there was a an actual community group working on that before Open Nebraska, but um, if it had existed, I think it had kind of um, fallen to the wayside a little bit. So when I met met up with them, I I was very interested in putting together kind of a meetup group and just seeing what will happen. I mean, I, I really didn't know – what I was doing, and they weren't really sure either. We're just like, let's just you know, start this meetup. Well, they, they weren't sure what you were doing. I'm, I'm sure they were confident in their own activities. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> I'm like, who is this? Let's check out too. So, yeah, yeah. So that I mean, the first six months, I think we we just met a lot and talked about what the potential was, and then we launched that third Hack Omaha hackathon that fall, and uh, kind of. Kind of went from there, I'd say, you know, we generally had monthly meetups, um, Open Nebraska did over at Avature and a variety of spaces all across the city. Yeah. And then I, I want to say that went on through 2015 and yeah, up until about 2015, because when I uh, accepted the position of executive director at DoSpace, I, that was two years ago, and right around that time, I was like, okay, I can't do Open Nebraska anymore because this job has really got, got a lot going on. So I didn't have a whole lot of extra time, so kind of stepped away from it. So, so as, as a computer program, I'm a computer programmer who pays taxes, and to me, if something is tax-funded, then open data just in general is a good thing. So. How is how are we supposed to make good decisions as voters if we don't see what's actually happening as much as possible, right? So, so that's kind of my take on it. Was that your take on it? That look, all government data, if it's open data, if it's publicly accessible data, why not make it easy to see? Is that absolutely? Is that fair? Okay. Yeah, I mean the transparency part of it is really really vital, and and for me, I I was really fascinated by this idea of civic engagement beyond voting. Because if you think about it, I mean, your average person, let's say they're a voter, that's about all they do in terms of engaging with civic life or or doing anything with or for the government. And so uh, what I thought was really compelling about civic hacking and kind of building community apps and tools is that this provided a whole new way for people to engage with that kind of life and I, uh, and, and to give back to government and to possibly fill, you know, holes there. I mean, it's, um, I would imagine that it's tough for some governments to attract the tech talent that they need to even consider doing some of that stuff. And so with civic hacking, I feel like that kind of movement pulls in some, some very talented techies such as yourself and, you're, you know, you're doing stuff that the maybe the government had never thought to do, 
or um, they don't have the funds available to hire someone to do it, even if they wanted to do it. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, from my, so my perspective is I walk into this, I walk into this group, not knowing anything about it, but I'm like, Oh, Hey, if I can use the computer skills that I have to make publicly accessible data actually accessible, it's possible we can get people more involved in their, their own government. And I think that would make for a healthier democracy. Right. So like right now, I think, like you said, most people just vote and that's the end of their engagement and so when when they vote and someone they don't like gets uh put in office then they're even less engaged because it's like look i I didn't even get the guy that i wanted on the one time that i voted but on the other hand like the 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 housing development that i live in my next door neighbor has walked over to me twice and said oh hey you know you need to be on the board of the sanitary improvement district so you can go to all these meetings and make all these really important decisions and i'm looking at the I'm reading through the schedule and the minutes of the previous meetings and I'm like, oh my God, this is so boring. <laughs> so like the, the, the yeah. problem that I have with, with government engagement, one of the problems is that, wow, the, the, the juicy bits, the detailed that are just in this ocean of banal stuff that I personally don't find. I have to stay really mentally stimulated at my job or I fall asleep. So. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, there are ways, I guess, that you can be civically engaged. Of course, we have a a variety of those kind of local boards where people can serve for a period of time and help make those decisions on behalf of the community. But, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, first off, it's it's hard to know what local boards exist. It's hard to know what... um, what positions are even available on those boards when they uh, come up for vacancies and even how to apply like that whole process is kind of not super, super clear. And that's actually one of the open Nebraska things that we totally fixed it. (laughs) We did. We fixed it. We took all the, I think Naomi C did all the work actually getting all the data out of the spreadsheets. And then we had an over engineered solution for, okay, this is going to be a local calendar of all, yeah. board actions in the area and that yeah i thought that was really cool yeah it's a really great idea it's a ton of work, it's a ton of work. to yeah. try to keep up with so well and i mean from the government perspective i mean they they've got data spanning a variety of departments and uh you know no particular standards for how they're using that data or storing it or who's got it and and so, yeah, I, and as I understand it, it was tough to even get that initial batch of information. But, you know, I, although Open Nebraska, I'm not really involved with it any longer. And I would say that for all intents and purposes, it's been pretty inactive, except for what you've been doing, uh, Jay. <laughs> Me and Jack, we're keeping it alive, baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, it'll never die. Um, I, I have a lot of hope for what where we could be going with this in the future. I think right now people are really hungry to be engaged civically, and that's this is a good time to take advantage of that. So. Oh, so are you going to launch a new effort of some sort? Maybe. Is this an exclusive? What? Maybe. <laughs> no? All right. Yeah, no, I'm looking at, you know, launching what what I can only just call Hack Omaha because I can't think of a better term. Uh uh, but you're going to get sued. <laughs> Isn't that taken? Back on no, I don't, taken? I don't think so. I, uh, 
I haven't heard of any other Hack Omaha initiatives since 2013, and so it's 2017, so I think we're good. But oh, yeah, and you've, you've established prior art, so I think you'll own it, no problem. Well, you know, it would have to be trademarked and all that. But <laughs> at, at any rate, um, I'm definitely looking at kind of launching a new group called Hack Omaha because, as I said, you know, now is the time to jump on the whole civic engagement thing. I mean, it's, um, we, li- we live in extraordinary times. So right now I'm, I'm chatting with some folks on that about, you know, what, uh, what worked with open Nebraska and what didn't work and how can we really start out strong with a strategy and some areas of focus. And then we can kind of, um, narrow down our focus some, some, some bit, because one of the things with open Nebraska that I think didn't work was that we didn't really have any particular strategy or like mission statement, right? I mean, we didn't have any kind of founding, like this is this kind of shit we're going to work on. You know, we just had like a thousand things going on all at once. And I think we were, I mean, we were entirely volunteer led, right? So we were spread thin already, but then we'd have like 10 different projects where we're like trying to research all of this is just like too much. So, you know, when you're talking about managing and um, keeping volunteers really excited over time, you know, you have to be very focused. So my thought with that is, you know, maybe this is more uh, uh, like shorter cohorts of action. So like 60 days, we're going to work on this particular problem or 90 days for this particular challenge or whatever um you know we're probably f- a few months out from doing anything but uh, i i don't know i think it's going to be fun all right well we're, we're all waiting with bated breath for you to fix government again <laughs> maybe just you though because <laughs> <laughs> you're the only one keeping up in nebraska alive well i want to show up and do like nerd stuff right mm-hmm. but, but the problem is like as an introvert it's i i have bursts of energy for dealing with people yeah. And then I burn out. And then I'm like, okay, well, look, I'm going to go be in a cave somewhere and not. Totally. So I'm right there with you. I'm a total introvert, too. That's why you lead dozens of people <laughs> constantly. Well, you, you'd be surprised. I think there's a lot of, of leaders who are introverts. And really? yeah, you, you go through spurts, you know, where you're you're on and you're off, you know, like you're on, you're out in public, you're engaging with a lot of different people, you know, a lot of uh, introverts are actually pretty charismatic and good in front of a crowd, but it just takes so much energy out of you. And then you just, you know, pass out essentially afterwards and you've got to have your alone time. And yeah, I assume the, the most effective CEO of a large organization would be someone who's running around, you know, 40 plus hours a week engaged and getting energized by the engagement, you know, as opposed to me where I'm in two hours of meetings and I'm like, uh, (laughs) yeah, I don't, um, that, that whole thing of like, do you get energy from being around people or does it take energy from you? And I'd say for me, it definitely takes energy, but I thought you were hypothesizing that leaders are introverts though, or not all leaders are, um, I assume the most effective leaders would be extroverts. I don't know. I think that would be interesting to find out, like, what's more effective in leadership, being an extrovert or an introvert. I'm not sure if there's an answer to that. I'm sure there is an answer, and it's extroverts. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I, I call myself an introvert, but I like the um, I'm definitely an ENTJ, so I think E is for extrovert. So I'm not really sure what that's all about. Yeah, On the my, the personality my, thing. Yeah. What's that one called? called? Yeah, I, I just did that again. <laughs> like I found my results from college recently. They're in my Dropbox somewhere. Have you changed since college? Uh, I did a very short one. Like, the one I did in college was a long-form, more accurate kind of version of it, I think. But, yeah, I think I redid it recently in a very short-form thing, and I don't think it changed. But I can't remember what I... I can't remember my letters. Yeah, it's... I think that personality test stuff can be helpful, and it can also be kind of hocus-pocus. But I think what's more interesting is how somebody's personality changes over the course of their life. Hmm. Because, like, me today... Me at age 33 is like nothing like Rebecca at age 23. How so? It's very different. Um, I'm not sure that I was ever interested in leadership or, um, you know, I wasn't particularly assertive. I think I've always been confident, but I don't know. I was just apathetic when I was in my my early 20s. I was kind of like, whatever. So in your 30s, now you want power and control and domination now over I others. It. Yeah, world domination for sure. Global domination? Oh, shoot. Oh, I thought we were just glad. talking about the Omaha area. Oh, shouldn't have let that slip. <laughs> Whoops. You heard it, her. heard it here first, folks. All right, so in my notes from what we were going to talk about, um, uh, you've got uh, libraries, community tech, future of libraries, challenges libraries are facing right now, where all that's going. So where is all that going? What what challenges are libraries facing right now? Did you want to talk about that? We don't have to talk about this. Yeah. We can talk about whatever oh, you want. I could chat about libraries all day. Yeah. So uh, challenges that libraries are facing. You just gave a big speech downtown yesterday or something? I wouldn't say it was big. It was it was <laughs> it was at the information exchange conference at Coneco. Yeah, it went pretty well. I talked about tech anxiety and um, you know, I touched on that thing because we chatted yesterday. I touched on that whole generational type, like. You stole my I, notes for your speech. I may have stolen. <laughs> you how about this? How you do remind, I get residuals you, on that? You remind. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't like a huge, huge crowd or anything. But um, I wanted to talk about not only just uh, tech anxiety and how it affects how we learn about technology and how we adopt technology. Um, I wanted to talk about just how to stay up to date with tech without losing your mind and, and without all the pressure and, and weird, like, I have to learn how to code or I'm going to die, kind of like an attitude. Um, you know, I don't... Is there a lot of that? Do you see a lot of people that are panicked to learn code because someone told them to? Yeah, some people are. And I'd say, you know, if you're changing your career and and you're, um, you're actually doing web stuff, obviously that is a useful skill, but I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of, um, there's this expectation out there even to, for kind of your average people to learn how to code and people kind of freaking out. Like if I don't learn or if I, my kids aren't learning this right now, they're never, ever going to be able to get a job. And I don't think that that's true. Mm. I mean, yeah, those jobs will be taken by the AI by the time their right. kids are old enough. So, well, <laughs> they're screwed. Yeah, I. The moral of that story is don't have kids. <laughs> I said that before in meetings. I'm like, well, just wait until the computers are coding themselves, and people are like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh. okay. Good luck life, with your but... tech degree then. 
Um, but yeah, I don't know. Li- libraries, I'm worried for libraries right now because of our, our current political situation. You know, at the moment, the funding for IMLS, uh, Institute of Museum and Library Services, is on the chopping block. So that that kind of worries me a little bit for for all libraries and museums, but... Um, so is IMLS this national thing that I don't know what it is that's mm-hmm. federally funded and the money comes down and... Yeah, yeah. So all the way down to the Omaha level, this IMLS money is helping support the library system? Yeah, I don't know um, what IMLS funding looks like in Nebraska, but it for sure kind of trickles down to all the states and they do a lot of different grants and things, especially for special innovative projects in all kinds of libraries, public libraries, university libraries, and um, that kind of stuff. So so th- that worries me. I'd say it's not really a surprise that um, that funding is being challenged, uh, but I... I really hope that libraries are in a strong position to oppose it and fight back. Sometimes I, uh, I kind of sometimes have this like love hate thing going on with libraries because I, obviously, how do you not love libraries, right? Obviously, obviously. I mean, they're these just pillars of, um, you know, community strength, and they protect freedom of thought, freedom of expression, freedom to read. Uh, you know, they provide resources to people who could never afford those resources. I mean, they're they're incredible. Um, and I'd say that libraries are information organizations, and we live in this information age, right? And so this is just an incredible cha- uh, time for, for libraries. And so that's, that's why I love it. I, I love libraries because of the potential and the opportunity. And um, I think that the the challenge of the internet and the digital world or whatever. I think that's been really stressful and really tough and hard on that industry, but I think it presents a lot of really cool future ideas. Um, And then uh, libraries drive me crazy because sometimes I feel like they're not seizing that potential. They're not uh, being as assertive and as confident as they could be. And, um, so I don't know. I kind of have a back and forth on that. I'm sort of critical. I'm critical of a lot of things, but with libraries, I just um, I really hope that they're still around. You know, like in a hundred years. I don't know how detailed you want to get on on uh, Trump administration politics, but I think there's a lot of small line budget items that are on the chopping block, all of which don't add up to nearly. Uh, from my perspective, they don't add up to squat compared to the money we are spending, which we probably shouldn't be spending. Mm-hmm. But libraries specifically, the I, what was it, the IMLF? Uh, yeah, International IMLS Library. and then um, the National Endowment for Arts and Humanities, yeah. all of them. It's like less than 1%, I think, of the total budget. It's less than what Trump has paid golfing, paid yeah. for his golf trips. <laughs> Come on, lash out, Rebecca. Oh, this is going to make man. great radio. I just um, <laughs> give it to him. <laughs> he listens to this podcast, you know. Who? Trump? Hell yeah! Oh, big fan. Well, let me tell you. Me or Trump? <laughs> Wait, hold on. Dear, dear Trump. 
Uh-oh. You have tiny hands. <laughs> Take that. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, it's obviously ridiculous. I mean... Uh, well, the, so let me defend a position I don't believe in. So, <laughs> because it makes for good podcasting. I, I do understand a, a broad uh, take on small government, right? Like, like, it is possible to construct, I think, a consistent theory which says that, look, government's not very good at doing these sorts of things, and so we should have a very small government. Mm-hmm. And uh, what small government looks like is a lot of this stuff goes away. But um, so, so I do hypothetically, I think, understand what some sort of uh, position where these things would be cut back and government is now smaller, taxation is lower, private individuals can contribute to these things as they see fit instead of being forced to under taxes Mm -hmm. and then the tax money may or may not be spent well. Like, I don't think that's what's happening in any of the budget proposals that I've seen, Um, but I, I do think it's possible to have a conservative view along those lines. Is that all bullshit? Yeah, I, I mean, I get it too. I understand why people want lower taxes. I mean, paying taxes is a pain in the ass, you know. But and I and I understand the small government thing, and I understand that um, there's like a lot of folks on the conservative side of things that really like they don't want government to kind of screw with them, right? Like, don't tell me what to do. Um, you know, kind of they want like a hands-off situation. And I, I think um, I think that, that one of the biggest challenges like right now, even just today as I'm reading some of the news, is that is this people really don't understand poverty very well and they think that being poor is some sort of like personal problem that they're, you know, the especially like Fox News and some of these folks are like, you know, if you're poor, it's your fault. And I don't really subscribe to that line of thinking. Obviously, there are a lot of things in society that uh, affect whether or not you're poor. Um, And so when it comes down to it, when you're talking about cutting public programs, to me, that's really just about greed. And it's, it's the people who are trying to cut public programs in a way, don't necessarily need them because they can't afford uh, great education. They can buy all the books that they want. You know, they could maybe even afford to give donations to you know museums of their choice or whatever. Like they they are of means that they can. They don't necessarily see the value for themselves personally, and therefore they don't see the value for other people. But there's this real kind of attitude of like, well, if it doesn't benefit me specifically then why, why would I care? Like, why do I care that there's, like, you know, a single mom in Philadelphia right now who is, uh, you know, trying to feed her kids and she can't, and she can't get access to programs because we've cut them. You know, it's just, it's, it's selfish and it's greedy. And, you know, we have to take care of each other in society. And there's a... a famous quote that I can't quite remember. I'm going to totally butcher, but in terms of libraries, you know, the argument is, you know, even if you can't, even if you can afford all the books you want and you can, um, pay for whatever it is that you need and that, uh, you know, I don't want my neighbors to be stupid, right? Like I want my neighbors to have the same opportunities 
to getting information as as I do, right? Like this, you know, even if you're very, very smart and you have all the means in the world, do you really want to live in a society where other people don't have those opportunities? I just, um, I don't know. I, I'm just not into it. And I, uh, with the public programs too, one thing I can't help but think is, you know how, I mean, I, I feel like conservatives or maybe libertarians or people who want that small government, they're kind of like hands off, like, I don't want the government controlling me type of thing. But I mean, I would really argue that cutting public programs is a form of control, right? Because when you provide resources to people so that they are not starving and they have somewhere to live and you've got kids who are able to read 15, 20 books every week for free through the library, you know, to me, that's freedom, right? Like you're able to live a fuller life and, and expand, expand your horizons. But if you don't have those opportunities, I think you're being controlled in a way. So you should go to the Omaha democratic socialist meetings that I've also been to. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I haven't been to those. Capitalism is exploiting the workers. So it's yeah. all exploitation from the top down and the, the bottom has nothing and we need massive societal shift and political shift. It's funny. So my, I have a brother, uh, John Stavik, and he is an economist. And he and I have had some crazy conversations over the years about capitalism. And I'll say that since he's an economist, he, he, he understands that kind of stuff in a fundamental way that I probably don't because he, he's got a master's in um, economics. He uh, teaches and um, all that. And so we've had some really funny, like, back and forth throughout the years, ever since probably high school. You know, I'm like, people before profit. And he's just like, the market is God. And and I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> Good argument. Yeah. No. Because <laughs> he's just, he's I a lot better John. prepared to argue in those moments. Oh, because yeah. Because I've literally taken one um, economics class, I think, in high school, and he's got a master's degree in it. And so it makes for a really hilarious um, kind of dynamic. But um, I I won't speak for him, but I think that he has become more liberal over time, you know, because it's with some some of those kind of like super conservative economic theories, I think they make sense in theory, but not as much in practice. And I think that over time, my my brother has become less conservative. Yeah, I think this. I think the small government uh, mindset um, can lead to a lack of a total lack of understanding of poor how poor people live, and. Um, if you can just, you know, you said, well, you don't want your neighbors to be stupid. Well, when I live in the upper middle class suburbs, they're not stupid because they're like me. But what's happening is that we lose sight of, you know, all the folks uh, that are marginalized in society. And so if you're going to live in a society, if you're going to say, okay, look, we're all Americans and there's 370 million of us, what level of social safety netting is appropriate for us as a nation, and how do we pay for that? Right. So yeah, and these are all trade offs. So you go from the 
what what I think the Democratic I still haven't interviewed a DSA person, but the Democratic Socialists obviously have one opinion, the anarcho capitalists have a different opinion, mm-hmm. and then the Republican Party has an official opinion, and the Democratic Party has an official opinion. I think. Um, yeah. Well, it's it's easier to assume that if you're poor, it's your fault. That's very black and white thinking. You know, it's not. You're not taking into account like the hundreds or thousands of factors that are going on in someone's life and in their past and their family and where they live and all of that kind of stuff that that impact that end result. But I don't know. I I feel like there's a lot of that kind of black and white thinking in the United States right now, and it's just really screwing with us. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah. I think you sent out the um, highfromtheotherside.com or something like that yes, link. Was that you? I did. And I haven't done that yet, but I'm very interested in doing that and maybe having somebody on the podcast. So that that's my – so, like, I had this thing that I was running uh, – oh, shoot. What was my thing called? It was genius, I tell you. Genius. <laughs> I'm sure it was. <laughs> uh, please convince me. Uh, okay. Please convince dot me because me is a top yeah. level domain. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> marketing. I'm a marketing genius. Um, yeah. Please convince me was the idea that hey, we're all well. Okay. So I have way too many hobbies, right? So I'm always running around and I show up in a room and everybody is super into drone racing or they're super into scuba diving or they're super into guns or whatever hobby it is that I'm showing up at and. Uh, what happens politically, I think, that's really unhealthy uh, is that we are so subdivided into these groups that we're not listening to each other at all. And that high from the other – have you done that? I signed up for it, but I never heard anything back. But that's one of several different services that will connect you with kind of like a pen pal on the other side. Of oh, I thought you were supposed to meet up and have coffee. Wasn't that the point? Some of them are meet up and, co- meet up and coffee like in, in person, and some are actual pen pals where you're supposed to write – like hand write a letter to someone and then they write back. Oh, I'd really, I'd want face to face, preferably on microphone. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I I can do my gotcha journalism. I think that'd make for a really cool. So what was it? So you went in there, you it's high from the other side.com. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Something like that. I'll I'll link it correctly from from the other side or something. And, so you register is, as like a Hillary yeah. voter or something, or what did you do? Yeah, so you can you can go in there and indicate who you voted for, um, or kind of like your general political leanings, and then they are supposed to connect you with someone on the other side of those issues that you agree with. And so, how did um, you self-identify when you registered? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a I was and kind of still am a Hillary supporter for sure. Um, And so I'm pretty sure when I got in there, I was like, yeah, I voted for Hillary. And then it's supposed to, oh, I think you can, you can pick, like, would you like to be connected with someone who supported Trump? Would you like to be connected with someone who supported like whoever else is running forgotten by now? What's that? What's that one guy? (laughs) Name a Republican. (laughs) There was like remember. twelve of them, right? So like, Ben yeah. Carson was the was the uh, brain surgeon guy. Oh, I think. Um, well, there was Jill Stein. I forgot about her. She wasn't in the. Well, never mind. I, my memory is so bad. She was. Yeah, people voted for. Her. I don't remember what her party was though. I should probably know that. Oh no! Right yeah, then? you're no, you're talking about the Libertarian Party. Yeah. Okay. There Jill, you go. Jill Stein ran Libertarian. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. I thought you meant the Republican fiasco that was the. Oh. 2016 primary yeah. season. 
But yeah, I, I like the idea of this, you know, some of these other services, they just hook you up with like an email pen pal. And the idea is for you, they always say, start off with something like, what did you want to be when you grew up, when you grow up type of thing? Like start with a really easy question that's not political in nature and just listen to each other. I mean, you're not, it, the point isn't to have like um, wild grand debates, but you know, can we talk to each other in a respectful, respectful way? Right. You know, there. <laughs> that was what police like, convinced me was: is hey, yeah. we are intentionally and respectfully seeking out people we disagree with, mm-hmm. so that we can talk and try to figure out well, what what set of information are you coming from that leads you to the opposite conclusion of the yeah. place that I'm coming from? Like, what is that? I really am fascinated by that. If people are driven by evidence, but. Now that we live in a post-fact America, I'm not sure what to do. Hashtag alternative facts. Right? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not sure. you got to talk into the mic, though, Rebecca. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's Uh-oh. this window It turned to ASMR here. all of a sudden. Yeah, I, I have hope. I have hope that, that we can kind of turn things around. But I'll say that what's going on today has never really happened in our lifetimes. I mean, I'm very old. Everything has happened in my lifetime. <laughs> You're not that old, Jay. But, I mean, I, I think that, you know, at least for me personally, the most of my adult life I have taken a lot for granted. And I would say that, I mean, I always thought I was maybe moderately politically active, but I'm not really. I mean, I, you know, had some stickers on my car and voted. You flew to D.C. for the Women's March. I did, yes. That's more active than 99% of people. Yes, that's true. But it's it's really tough to um, sustain that kind of energy. So I have found myself being like really lazy with it in the past month or so. Um, outrage fatigue. Outrage fatigue. Well, yeah, and I uh, there's so much to be outraged about. Right. I mean, there's not like one issue that's driving me crazy. It's like 50 issues. Right. And it's when I sit down and really think about that, like, so what if, you know, so there's all these things going on in the world. If there was just one thing and I just tackled that hardcore, you know, it could be a political issue or it could be some kind of like charity driven thing. I mean, everyone knows I'm like a huge animal advocate. I used to work for a humane society. Like, what if I just, all of my free time energy, I sit down and I'm like, I'm just going to work on animal rights. That's it. I'm just going to do that. And being someone, Jay, who has like a thousand hobbies yourself, you know that that's like not going to work, right? Like, imagine. What do you mean it's not going to work? Well, imagine if you took, like, you just kind of scraped your life full of all the extra stuff that you did and you were like, I'm just going to focus on this one thing for a long time. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel like. At some point, you it would drive you crazy because you're trying to to do more than just that. But you don't think you could move the needle on animal rights? I could if it was like the only side project that I would do. That's the thing. It's like I mean, what's more beneficial? Being an advocate for thirty things, and you're giving you know you're not able to do any of those things really well because you only have so much time in the day. Or are you more effective if you just jump all in on one issue and go crazy with it? Right. So if my mission is to save the world, right, I can either do 
I can either work on 50 of them and accomplish nothing, or I can work on one of them really hard and right. maybe accomplish nothing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Excellent. Absolutely true. I should be a recruiter for nonprofits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, jump in. It's going to be awesome. But I do. I get all this energy about doing something, and I'm like, all right, let's do it. And I go do it, you know? And then I'm yeah. like, you know, after a few years or whatever well, it takes, I'm like, oh, boy. And I think that... Um, that kind of action has seasons, right? Like there are periods in my life where I'm really, really passionate about a particular issue. Maybe it's political or cultural or um, there's some kind of a charity thing. Um, I don't know. I've got so many. I mean, you should see I actually have a to-do list in Wonderlist that has anything from super low level, like I need to do laundry, all the way to like start, you know, some huge organization I mean, I have, like, huge ideas in there, and I'm like, when am I going to do that? Ooh. Do I wash my socks or cure cancer first? It's, <laughs> totally. That's a tough call. Yeah. Well, what motivated you to fly all the way to D.C., and what was that experience like? So what, what made yeah. you decide you were going to do the Women's March? Um, not long after the election, and I, I mean, maybe that week or the week after, whenever it was when the Women's March was announced, uh, I immediately jumped on top of it. I thought, okay, first off, we all know hotels in D.C. go fast. And knowing that the inauguration was going on and this uh, this march, I really wanted to, to jump on it. So I got online and I got super lucky. I got a great Airbnb. And I talked to my mom and she was all into it too. And I think that for those of us who went, it was a really great moment to express frustration. I mean, I after the election, I was uh, just pissed, you know, just like, what happened? And I mean, so many of us were just like, what happened with this election? I mean, nobody really, many, many people did not know that the election was going to go the way that it did. And... Um, you know, for those of us who are not Trump supporters, we were all kind of like, oh no, this is, this is going to be different. So yeah, so I was, I just, I spent that week pissed off. I think a lot of, a lot of the country did. And I saw the women's march as a way to kind of express that frustration with what's going on. But in particular, you know, the, the past year, year, two two years or so, there have been some really great – there's been this incredible dialogue about women's rights going on. And I, uh, I have felt like this is really a second women's rights movement. And then, you know, to have um, now a president who's, who's very likely a rapist and has actively spoken out against women and have said some awful things. I just think that's a step in the wrong direction. And, um, you know, when I went to DC, there were a lot of people there, obviously like half a million people and people had their own reasons for going. And what's funny is when I was there, I actually ran into some Trump supporters um, my mom and I, and, and her friend BJ, we walked over to, Arlington, um, just kind of as like a break. And we ran into some folks who were in town for the inauguration and they were super nice and just really curious, like what's going on? Like, why do you have these pink hats on? What's going, you know, they're very curious as to, as to what 
like, why are all these women here? Mm. And I, I told those folks, I said, look, I can't tell you why other people are here because some people were there for, I mean, um, LGBTQ rights. Uh, some were there for uh, immigration rights. Like, the if you actually get on that website, they list, like, a hundred different reasons why various people went. And I said... You know, I'm here because I think that our president is a sexual predator, and I don't think that that sends a good message to anybody in the world, but especially to people in the United States and our kids. And, you know, I think it's screwed up, and we don't have to take it. Like, we don't have to have this reality in which our our president um, treats women like that. And obviously, Trump isn't the first president that we've had that... um, you know, treats women uh, with disrespect. But, you know, I think that now is a time where women can stand up and call bullshit on that and just be like, we don't, we don't need to take this. We don't need to live in a country where our leaders devalue women and um, treat us like second-class citizens. I think it's bullshit. So that's why I'm there. And, um, yeah, so that's that's kind of where I went. And it was – it was a great experience. The The whole march was very, very peaceful, very positive. A lot of people were singing. Interestingly, though, I never actually marched on the march route because there were so many people there that you couldn't, like, the crowd just stopped. Like, there was no movement in the crowd at some point. And so I uh, took a lift to somewhere in the surrounding neighborhood and all of the streets kind of going into D.C. were just full of people. And so we kind of had – we marched essentially for about two hours just getting to where the march was supposed to start. Mm-hmm. And uh, then we hung out for a little while, and then we kind of took off and grabbed some lunch. But um, there were just so, so many people. So – Um, But it was cool. It was very positive. And it was cool for me to have that experience with my mom, you know, because she was around during the the first kind of women's rights movement. And um, I think it was just kind of a therapeutic type moment because we were around so many other women who and it was just so positive and supportive. And it, you know, it just gave me a lot of hope. So. Hmm. So do you still feel that? So now that's two two months ago a month ago so do you is there ongoing so the problem like i'm admitting this is a problem in my brain the the problem in my brain is if i do something and then a month later it's like oh okay well that i feel like i didn't accomplish anything mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm i'm saying this is wrong i know it's intellectually wrong but it feels true in my head so yeah. do, do you feel like there's an ongoing effort there that's do you think that's put a bunch of pressure on the, the Trump campaign to be less of an asshole or? I don't know. I, I'm kind of the same way too, though. Like, even though I feel like I contributed to, to a, a very grand statement, like I marched in the world's largest protest. Yeah, that's historic. I mean, yeah, you I can f- tell your grandkids that you were there. I feel really good about that. I feel like I feel glad that I was part of a statement And I'd say that coming home, you know, since then, there have been a variety of ways to to get involved. I've done some of them and I've ignored others um, just because at some point you just don't have the bandwidth 
to deal with it. And side note, I realized that um, uh, being able to step away kind of mentally from from that is a privilege, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not talking about, I mean, at least with the women's march and everything, we're not talking about violent, like, bloody conflict. Like, uh, you know, we're, I am not in a position where I have to be out there on the streets fighting for my life and fri- fighting for my family's future every day. You know what I mean? And I, f- I feel like, I mean, at least in my experience, I can't think of an, any other marches or protests that have been as chill and like there wasn't any anger and I don't know if that's good or bad. There wasn't a lot of anger at that March. I wasn't, I wasn't really angry while I was there, but a lot of people have kind of criticized the effort as not going far enough. And, um, there's been a lot of other criticisms of the women's March, uh, because it wasn't diverse enough I guess, in the the leadership of the people who put the march together or something. I mean, when I was there, the group was, the the crowd that I was around was very loving and very diverse and inclusive. At least that's how I felt about it. But I totally understand how other people might feel differently. But, um, you know, since the march, we've had the strike, the... um, was that like last week? I was in Florida. I don't. I don't <laughs> it was like, oh wait, 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 last week or the week before, and so uh, women would, would a, a day without women or something. Yeah. Right? Wasn't it called? Oh no, that was a day without immigrants. There was a day without was immigrants. A diff- that was a different day. Yeah. But and it was like a general strike of all women. Yeah. But that was, I think, that was in January, right? When I was out of town. No, it was about a week or two ago. I want to say it was maybe two weeks ago. I think it was like on a Wednesday. Oh. Hmm. Oops. And- <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord, Jay. I didn't notice. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so the idea is that if you can strike, do it. And if you can't, then, uh, you know, wear red in support of the strike and try not to, like, don't spend money that day. Or um, if you do, try to spend money at uh, women and minority-owned, like, local businesses and stuff. The idea is that, you know, women in part really drive the economy and aka women have a lot of power so let's keep that in mind folks type of deal yeah if we jump back into your um some people have criticized the movement for not being angry enough or forceful enough or aggressive enough I i just had this conversation last week where um there's i was listening to a podcast of people that i agree with the position that they're coming from but the presentation of it was just assholic. I mean, it was terrible. These guys are, I mean, they're, they're going to town in a ranting style. Mm-hmm. Now, I agree with their position, but their argument is shit. I mean, it's a terrible argument, and it's presented in this really angry way. And I, I can't abide that level of communication, even when you're right. But... You, you get a thrill, like if somebody's an asshole, but they're your asshole, they're on your side, then you get a thrill like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to kick butt and we're going to get it back and we're going to whatever. Yeah. But that, from my perspective, is how we lost the 2016 election. And I'm mm-hmm. a registered independent, not 
huge supporter of anyone, but I could not fathom having Trump in there. Uh, so I basically voted against Trump. The thought that this aggressive kind of uh, presentation is going to change anybody's mind, I think, is wrong. You're, you're not changing their minds. You're making them um, uh, buttress up there. You're reinforcing their position because they're not listening to you. Mm -hmm. So the only thing we can do is try to understand each other and talk calmly to each other and say, hey, look, this seems really important to me. And say things like, like in my case, I'm always saying, look, doesn't your religion say you're supposed to help the poor? Mm -hmm. Doesn't it say that you're supposed to help the needy, that the rich people are not going to get into heaven? I mean, all of these things, and I, I don't understand how, if that's your religion, how these actions comply with your stated position. I mean, I'm an atheist. I can be an asshole if I want to, right? But if you're if you're going to you be have a, no morals, <laughs> if you're going to if you're going to be a Christian, I feel like because I was raised in a Christian household, and I so I've I've got 18 years of exposure to. I think I understand religion pretty well, and I love talking about it. But I don't understand how people can, in good conscience, um, support certain political actions given that stated religious belief. And and the the original point was that it might feel good to let an asshole run amok because they happen to be on your side of this position, mm -hmm. but that's only making it worse, and that's how we ended up here. So yeah. you try to be thoughtful, and you try to be kind, and people drive you insane, and you want to fight back. At some point, you like break, and you're like, okay, look, that's it. I'm done. Now it's time to put on the shit kickers, and we're going to get some <laughs> crap taken care of. That's the line where once you cross it, you've stopped being effective at all. Yeah, well... Or not. See, I'm having this debate in my yeah. own head. Yeah, I know. I, I'm right there with you because I, I think that a lot of times anger is a product of fear, right? And so I just wonder when people get to that asshole level, if it's just they're just so consumed with fear that they're trying to express that in a different way. Well, I think some people are doing it for a living. They're doing it for the money. So the profit right. motive in media is drama. That's what sells. Yeah, totally. You know? If it bleeds, it leads. That's how it works. So when you're making money, like if I was selling ads on this podcast, you should be totally convinced <laughs> that I'm trying to pump up the drama because that's how you get <laughs> listeners and that's how you get viewers, right? And so there's all these industries that will feed on people who are willing to drive them through that kind of anger and drama and whatever. And there's no money in sitting down and having coffee with somebody who happened to vote differently than you did. There's no money in that. Yeah. You know, but it, but maybe that's the only thing that actually works over time is that you have to. And, and I think society, you just tell me to shut up whenever I think society breaks down along uh, the lines of, of uh, population density. So I think people that live in very urban areas have a certain life perspective because that's how life is in high-density areas. And you get into low-density, which is 99% of geographically Nebraska, and there's a very different way of looking at the world. And these are not, they're not wrong. It's just a very different life perspective, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of conflict going on there right after the election because I'm from a rural area in South Dakota. I'm from a farm that's outside of a town of about 600. 
So we didn't even live in the 600 town. Like, it was, <laughs> you know, too it was pretty rural. <laughs> too and, bustling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that big time city life. So, and, um, I've always been really proud to come from a farm. I, I think farmers are incredible. I think they're, I mean, they're scientists, they're entrepreneurs. Um, you know, you have to be a really strong person to run a farm, especially in an area where you get just incredible blizzards, negative 40 degree weather in the winter. And, um, so I've always been proud of that fact, but after the election, I really had just this negative reaction to like rural folk. Right. I mean, I was immediately like, I am ashamed to be from a rural area right now. Wait, so when you went to college, sorry, when, no, no, when did um, this, Right after the election, because, you know... Oh, this, oh this not was, growing up. I thought we were talking about a transition growing up, oh. where suddenly you moved to the big city or you went off to college, and now you were ashamed of the well, rural background? I, I didn't, like, I didn't grow up grow up on the farm. I was there when I was a, a kid up until maybe age eight or something, and then I moved around for a long time, and then it ended up in Georgia. So a lot of my childhood, I ended up living somewhere else, but then spending Christmas and three months out of the summer on the farm. So I'm kind of like half rural, half not, but I lived there until I was maybe eight or nine, you know, full time. So, and then my dad continued to live on the farm. Um, but you know, having come from a rural area and now I'm living in a, a small city, but I still have just a, an incredible love for the prairie and for the Midwest, you know, seeing, I, you know, it, my conflicting feelings about like, uh, the, the election and rural America were all kind of like wrapped up all in this frustration. And I, I felt really ashamed of rural America in that moment because the Trump presidency was a big victory for, you know, they say that it was really rural communities that, um, that made that happen. And, and so my reaction was, you know, being pissed off and angry and, um, you know, coming to some really douchebag conclusions about rural folks, even though I am from a rural area and, um, you know, some of the most incredible people I've ever met live in rural areas, right? And so, um, so I, I don't know, I, I felt really weird about that and, and, now looking back during that time around the election, I just think that I was, I was really reacting, not, I was having a reaction. I wasn't really responding to it well. I, I think that, you know, I, I made some statements about rural America that I just, it was, I was being an asshole a little bit. Can I read you your Twitter from around the election? Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Do you have it? It's on Twitter. I was just oh, yeah. kidding. But well, yeah, I, I remember some pretty angry I was tweets. I was like, what's going on? Rural America? Like, are you serious? He's not going to help you, you know? And that, that was just well, but that's what, that's, the that was tragedy. Well, so so here here's where I'm like, uh, okay, Rebecca and I, as two Clinton voters, should not sit here and talk <laughs> about and speculate about why people voted for Trump. Yeah. I think I do understand many different reasons why the people I've talked to have voted, did vote for Trump, and but I really need to sit down with them and hear it from them and yeah. not just yeah. speculate because that drives me crazy. And that's what talk radio oh, yeah. is. It's just like endless. Just, 
hearsay about other people's opinions and strawmanning the other side and then attacking right. this bullshit Why argument. Why do you think they acted that way? That wasn't... Well, I don't know. Let's just like <laughs> speculate. You know? Yeah, they just make it up. They just make it up what other people think. So. Yeah. But I, I'm I, it's kind fun of right to do. There. It's fun to do. Trust me. But totally. yeah, and I can I can play that rural America side, but it'd be bullshit. So yeah, it's not actually my life. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I think that uh, coming from a rural area, what I can say is that I I really feel like a lot of rural America is in crisis, and um, they, you know, for those folks who voted in that way. I can only imagine they were voting in a way that they thought was going to help them. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what we all do, right? We're trying to make um, America better. But I think just for me, the tragedy is that I just I just know Trump's not going to help them. And it's going to make it worse. And we're going to continue to have this uh, increasingly awful you know, rural versus urban type, you know, like East Coast versus, you know, Midwest. And and there's just so much division going on. Well, I'll play the optimist and say that the pendulum has swung and it's going to swing back hard because my, yeah. my prediction was it was going to take six months for a lot of Trump voters to feel disillusioned. Mm-hmm. That, hey, Trump, you've been president of the United States for six months. And we don't like what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then the pendulum swings. And then I assume in 2018, a bunch of Republicans lose House seats. But Yeah, I mean, it's always gone back and forth. I mean, and but, I, but it's uh, so vitriolic this time. That's yeah. what scares me about the... the it, it wasn't that... You know, Louis C.K. has this whole thing about, look, politics is about the Democrats and the Republicans taking turns. So, like, you either agree with them or you don't agree with them. But, you know, these guys are kind of on this side of the stuff, sort of. And these guys are kind of on the other side of the stuff, sort of. And, you know, you get a turn for a while. And then it's the other team's turn. And they get a turn for a while. And another team's turn. And then Louis freaked out because Trump wants to break the system. It's not that he's opposed to the Republican side of it. Okay, it's the Republicans' turn. Mm -hmm. It's that he wants to break shatter the system and then he immediately regretted getting political at all and, yeah. <laughs> and tried to backpedal or did backpedal it but i don't know yeah <laughs> i mean you're right and it's i thank you i'm i'm often right always i'm right. a genius okay. but i mean i don't have anything against you know republicans or conservatives or libertarians or whatever i i really try to make a conscious effort to um tr- try to not put people in buckets as much. I, I don't want to try to judge people just based on their uh, political affiliation because, frankly, there's there's so much diversity just even within the Republican Party. I mean, you've got – just as there is in, in the Democratic Party. And um, But I, this particular situation, you know, we have seen a lot of people on all sides of the issue very pissed off about – about what's going on in the White House, and this is just a different ball game. And I and I'll say that I I really feel like we all have an obligation to speak up on this. Like not just everybody, but leaders especially, um, or people who care about communities. If there's something going on in this country right now that 
is really pissing you off and you think is really negatively affecting the people that you serve, you've got to say something, right? Like I think that that's what it comes down to. In times in the history of the world when people haven't said anything, you know, and evil shit is going down, that's that's where things really get awful, right? And I'm sure there's a really beautiful quote on that. I can't remember. Well, I, re- I remember around election time, it was um, a lot of challenge to historical things. So yeah. if you ever questioned what, it, what you would have done had you lived in this period of history when these awful things happened, mm-hmm. the answer is whatever you're doing right now, that's what you would have done Yeah. in that historical era. And it's a challenge to step up and kick ass and take names. I have a technocratic revolution for you. Oh, wonderful. You ready? Yes. So it it seems to me, being a numbers guy, that we can solve all political strife. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like this. Ready? This is going to be great. Did I just make this up? What if, instead of the Republican Party, and what if instead of having political parties that, that run, what if we had a system of voting for financial allocation. So the, the, the flow starts over here, right? And so what, what you have is you have all of the tax money that's, that's coming in and by popular opinion, we're going to set fiscal policy to, so you set the tax rates, whether or not, how high are the tax rates, how low are the tax rates. And you go in there and it's, it's all a big, you know, I guess it's a website because it's a computer simulation of whatever. And you go in there and you set where you think these thresholds should be. Should we have a progressive tax system or a, a regressive tax, tax system? Whatever tax rates should be, et cetera. Okay, now that's how much money you have. And then that bucket goes down here. And now you've got a budget broadly, right? Like I'm not expecting everyone to know the details of uh, mm-hmm. the 27 departments in the Department of Energy. But broadly speaking, what percentage of money should we spend on uh, – on the military versus the, 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 and so you go in there and you play with the dials and you say, okay, this is my budget proposal. Yeah. It's a rough budget proposal, obviously. Yeah. But what if every citizen did that? What if every citizen engaged in, this is my budget proposal. And then we took all of that shit and we like averaged mean them or whatever and said, okay, America, this is the, this is the taxation system that you yeah. voted for. And so people cool. who are super like, Hey, well, the pejorative term is tax and spend liberals, right? But if you think there should be a very strong social safety net with very high tax rates and maybe it's concentrated very highly on the very rich people, maybe that's what you think. So maybe there's a lot of money in government and it's going to be spent you know, in this way. And we've got a billion-dollar National Endowment of the Arts, right? And NASA can start going to Mars immediately because we found another extra penny out of every American's pocket. But what if that was the thing? Yes. I don't vote for a Republican or a Democrat. What I do is I go into this web system and I propose a budget. Yes. I think that's cool. I think It'd that, be like Brexit uh, all over again. So <laughs> Only no one would participate. No, yeah. Like how many people well, would find this interesting? Very few. <laughs> I think it'd be very amazing. Very few people would be like, you know, I got, I got the weekend off. Let me just help create the federal budget, right? 
But, I, but I you think- could spend as much or as little time as you wanted to. And you could yeah. go, because, I'm mean, fuck, I, <laughs> there are billions of man hours going into World of Warcraft. Billions yeah. of man hours. So if you so can gamify this shit. <laughs> yeah, if you can gamify this shit. But it's, but it's actually your money. You're actually okay. proposing how to game the. We got to get Mario involved with this. Not Luigi? What do you got against Luigi? Luigi. Oh, okay. Isn't he? He's he's the one with the green hat. Yes. The red hat and green hat. Okay. So I, I think maybe one of like the one challenge to consider in that idea is that you're going to shoot down my idea. You're well, going to crush my no, dreams. No, no. So, um, a lot of people don't realize what stuff costs. That's what I'm saying. But that this is solving that problem too. It's like, hey, look. I don't know though. What? So I mean, I'm talking about like staffing and operations and supplies and all that kind of stuff that are worked into any organization. They would probably be severely under budgeting on those things because they have no awareness of that kind of stuff. No, the the mission the mission but, gets. So if you're the Department of Defense, you get a trillion dollars or a billion dollars or five hundred dollars, whatever. I'd and so, a billion, but I mean, whatever <laughs> whatever you think we should be spending. On yeah. be, because maybe we're keeping the world safe, or maybe we're blowing tons yeah. of money and wasting it. Um, but whatever you think, you set the budget. Okay, so now the budget is a trillion dollars, and now whoever the secretary of the fucking <laughs> whatever, <laughs> I don't know what things are called, but you know, stick the appropriate names. This will sound brilliant if you put the right names. I'm going to do a voiceover which says Secretary of State. <laughs> It'll just clip secretary it in. Secretary of like, State. <laughs> you could do it in like Homeland a, Security like a Defense. <laughs> I could. Like, wait, what? <laughs> That's not Jake. But my point is, the the budget is a trillion dollars, or right. you set it at five hundred billion dollars, or whatever. Your point about oh boy, your point about uh, bureaucratic uh, efficiencies, like how much it costs to staff it and whatever. That's mm-hmm. their problem. Like, look, you got a you got a trillion dollars. Spend it however you want. Right. The more efficient you are, the more tomahawk warheads you can buy, or whatever the yeah. thing is. I think that's one argument. I think another way you could do that is if. Maybe instead of saying, like, Department of Defense, so you just uh, dumb it down a little bit because a lot of people don't really understand budgeting, right? So instead of saying, like, here's a Department of Defense and we're going to allocate X amount for this, that, whatever, you could just say, like, there'd be a bullet point. Instead of saying Department of Defense, it would be, like, like protection and security or something like that. And then somebody who doesn't have, like, vast understanding of, you know, government workings, they could still participate because they'd be like, well, you know, I would really love to see more go to schools and education than protection and homeland stuff. You know what I mean? That could be a way to do it where you could have Department of Defense, a.k.a. protection, etc. Because... (laughs) Because that, that would be a way that you could engage people who do – maybe they don't know. I mean, there are people, I'm sure, who don't know what the Department of Defense does. I mean, I I don't know. Um, so the, that could be a way. The guy in charge of the energy department didn't know what the energy department did. <laughs> and now he's in charge of it. <laughs> he wanted to eliminate it, but he couldn't yeah. name it. It was that guy, whatever that guy's I name is. I can't was. remember his name. And now he's the head of it. Face. And now that he's the head of it, it he's Rick been Perry? briefed. I don't remember. No. And now that he's been briefed, he's like, oh, hey, this thing actually does important stuff. I regret having yeah, said we should eliminate we should it. it. <laughs> so it's just amazing to me the audacity, the, the complexity of government and the audacity every freaking cycle of people saying outrageous things. Yeah. Like you can say outrageous things, but just don't get specific. Say, look, I don't know. I don't know the details of how it is that we're going to drain the swamp. I don't know. 
But this is what a swamp looks like. This is what politics without swampishness <laughs> looks like, right? And we're going to go from here to there. And I don't know how to, I don't know. I'm Instead of saying, swamp. but that's, that's you know, swamp. but if people are going to vote for empty, dramatic bullshit that has no substance, then, you know, but, you how know, do you win if you, if you can't? But it evokes an emotional response. No, I know. And that's how, if that's how and people that's vote. that's people make decisions. They don't make decisions on, on facts and logic. It's, it's very often that people, I mean, your decision-making capacity really comes from those gut feelings. You know, it's, it's like that uh, TED Talk and that book called Start With Why. And I'm always yapping about this because when you're talking about marketing anything or trying to get any message across, even when I give talks on tech stuff, I always talk about why before I talk about what. And so um, and it's something I, I would hope libraries to do more of that you know let's not talk about what libraries do let's talk about why they exist to begin with because when you start talking about that kind of stuff and you focus on the why it just gets you excited and that's where you're starting to make like that's the fuel for decision making and so when you say like i'm gonna drain the swamp people are like hell yeah we're gonna drain the swamp voting for whoever and so, yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I want to drain the swamp. I don't know what this... I don't you want to drain the swamp? I mean, I think swamps are probably pretty good, right? Like, not in D.C., they're not. No, like in southern Florida, right? Like, isn't that... You're missing the point. Wet Wetlands Clearly you're missing the point. I want to protect the wetlands, Jay. <laughs> I mean, we shouldn't Because you're wanting s- to shoot all the ducks? <laughs> you're wanting ducks unlimited so you can blast them with your shotgun? Is that what you're the, wanting? the duck shoot em up game on, like... Classic NES. Yeah. Duck hunt. Is it duck hunt? Duck hunt, and yeah. you've got the little gun. But yeah, I mean, I don't. I, I we shouldn't have a swamp situation in in government. I think that's bad. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> See, you agree. You agree to drain the swamp. That we've got to. We have to drain the swamp. Exactly. See, we've got to. Do- I'm turning you around, <laughs> slowly but surely, turning you around. Mm. All right. So maybe the last thing I had. Oh. You said you could discuss your cats for a while. <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to make good radio, though. Yeah, there's not much to say. I mean, they literally just lay around and sleep all day. So. You said in your email for quite a while you could discuss hey, your you, cats you for quite a while. you want to go there, oh, I can go there. <laughs> can we get them to meow on a mic? <laughs> They'd be like, ah! <laughs> uh, all right, I've run out of notes about what we were going to talk about. Did you have other stuff you wanted to talk about, or? I can't think of anything specifically. Excellent. All right. Yep. I'm glad I could flaunt my ignorance with you. Oh no no! Only I flaunt my ignorance Wait, on this podcast. I can't flaunt it too. Oh you! Oh you're flaunting my ignorance. Wait. <laughs> sure, that's fine. Can I flaunt your <laughs> ignorance and my ignorance? <laughs> it should be Jay and guest flaunt Jay's ignorance. Maybe that should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me on your podcast. I've never done a podcast before. Well, you're very welcome. So thanks for awesome. thanks for coming on. This is cool. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>